Chapter 2 We should indeed be fools to sacrifice ourselves to the conventional. Benjamin Disraeli, Endymion, 1881 It's early autumn, 1998. I am 21 years old and teaching myself to ride a motorcycle. The general watches me through his open window upstairs in a dilapidated boarding house we both call home near Seattle's University District. A wispy-haired Vietnam vet, he groans loudly in frustration as I kill the engine yet again. Sputtering, it nearly topples over as acrid smoke trails from dual exhaust pipes. I coast to a halt in crisp leaves spangling brown and orange down the block. The kickstand to my 1981 Honda Magna is bent, so it must be raised up on its center support when parked. I remove my helmet, freeing the short bleach-blonde mohawk underneath, then step on a metal peg below the frame, bear down, and shift rearward. This rolls the whole back end, but requires a certain technique to completely lift. Nearly 15 tries later, sweat pours down my forehead. Joggers and dog walkers smile as they pass. You sure you're doing okay down there? The general yells down, bushy eyebrows raised. I'm fine, I reply, gritting my teeth. After another ten minutes, I finally heave the motorcycle upright and retreat inside. It's unknown how many people share this house. My quarters are an eight by ten foot space built by creative remodelers who partitioned the former main dining area into two bedrooms. From outside, one can see drywall plastered flush against the glass windows. It splits our chambers like bifocal lenses. Some past tenant proclaimed, Julian loves Rachel, in large red letters spray-painted on the wall. This place may be a fire trap, but at least rent is cheap. In search of lunch, I open the refrigerator. It doesn't smell too bad. However, food storage in our common kitchen is risky. Some residents identify jars and containers with the names and the occasional admonition, keep out. Thick permanent marker ink on my plastic jug of milk spells out ox jizz, and so far people have left it alone. I dumpstered a whole box of popcorn last night, the general hollers down from upstairs. It's on the counter, help yourself. Thanks, I shout back. I elect saving the general's find for later and prepare a sandwich instead. Then, fortified with ham and pickles, I return to motorcycle practice. Two hours later, I zip confidently around the block, and as dusk sets in, make an initial foray onto the freeway. A short trip, just one ramp to the next, but speed fills me with exultation. Air batters against the scratched windscreen of my second-hand helmet with just a hint of chill. Despite the hazy view, all becomes clear. This machine is my escape to a new life. On October 1st, I ride Interstate 5 south across the Columbia River into Portland, Oregon. A bright day billows all around and wheels vibrate along the bridge. Two backpacks bound together serve as saddlebags slung across the rear seat with my sleeping bag strapped on top. The V-twin engine roars and a brisk wind hammers against me as it rushes down the gorge, carved out by torrents over millennia. Within a few days, I move into a boarding house on the outer east side of town. Its owner, a stringy man in his late fifties, lives upstairs and rents out three main floor rooms. Every common area, including the bathroom, is wired with speakers dialed into a 1970s music station. At night, he turns the volume down, but in nocturnal stillness, disco and funk classics scrape along just below a whisper. One housemate, a tiny wizened man, suffers some terrible debilitating illness. 
His bent frame moves slowly, supported by a walker patched with duct tape. The other lodger is a woman in her early forties named Mona, whose room faces mine. She is obese beyond morbidity, her belly suspended between thick blotchy knees. Dark bangs from a sloppy home-dye job frame pink cheeks that beam in pleasant welcome. After several weeks, I find work operating forklifts at an aluminum anodizing plant. The swing shift schedule runs 3.30 until 12 a.m., and one rainy Thursday night, I trudge indoors even later than usual to find Mona in the kitchen. Thunderous pops emanate from the microwave. My leather jacket is wet, and I sling it angrily over a chair. Water runs down the sleeves. Mona chuckles as I stretch and adjust my lower back. <laughs> Couldn't tell if that was my popcorn or your spine. Tough day at work? You look grim as hell. Got pulled over, just a couple blocks down the street. The police impounded my bike. I sit down and swipe a hand across my helmet visor. Don't do that, you're getting water all over the table. Sorry. I move it onto the floor. What happened? You speeding? No, not in this weather. I did cut a yellow pretty good, just enough a cop noticed and followed me. Problem is, my signal lights don't work. I use hand motions, you know. Well, that's only legal during daytime, so I got pulled over for equipment failure. Mona exhales shortly. <laughs> Come on, nobody gets towed for that. Well, I don't carry insurance. Plus, they noticed I don't have a motorcycle endorsement either. Oh, that's a shame. Mona taps her finger on the warped countertop. Don't get me started on Smokies. Did you know I used to be a trucker? Until last August, that's when I got fired. My boss really had it in for me. Lucky unemployment lasts a little longer. She snorts, opening the microwave door. Steam rises and a buttery aroma fills the room. Mona pours the popcorn into a large plastic bowl and points generously. Help yourself. Thanks. I take a handful. It's very salty. So, can you just pay a fee and get your bike back? I grimace. Unlikely. I don't have a title for it either. Mona slaps her forehead. Godchild, you are a mess. I sigh and look down. The helmet glistens up at me, water drying in streaks across the glossy surface. My cargo pants are soaked as well, and I wiggle damp toes inside heavy boots. Why do you cut your hair that way? Mona asks. The mohawk lays compressed sideways from sweat and helmet pressure. That's how I like it. Don't people look at you funny? Sometimes. That's their problem. Mona purses her lips. It's sure different. Of course, at your age, it's still okay to do wild stuff. I laugh. Oh, yeah? How much time do I have? Until you're 25. That's a good cutoff point. Glad you'll leave me a few years grace, then. Mona cracks open a can of root beer. Don't mean to pry, but what are you doing in Portland? She takes a deep swallow. I spent all my life in Seattle. Seemed like a good time for something new. Maybe stay and work here a little while, then keep exploring. Perhaps head toward Chicago next. Mona cackles. Ha! <laughs> if there's anything ten years trekking taught me, it's avoid big cities. This town is plenty large, probably too big for my tastes. Oh, what a crazy plan. You seem like a decent kid, though. Got your nose in a book half time I've noticed. Never been much for reading myself. That's just how I grew up. My parents kept television pretty much off limits. Literature probably raised me as much as anything else. Well, if you're not going right to sleep and want to break from all those books, the Golden Girls are on in a few minutes. Want to join me? Sorry, what's that? Mona draws herself up in horror. You've never seen the Golden Girls? Oh, this is a tragedy. What about M.A.S.H.? That's right afterward. I shake my head silently.
Well, there's plenty of popcorn if you want to fill some gaps in your life. She lowers her voice. Since that cheap bastard we rent from won't let us share his house phone, I got my own line put in. Seen you in the booth up the street a few times. Use mine and save a walk. Just ask, okay? I accept all her offers. Because we're both nocturnal, Mona soon invites me over to watch TV nearly every night. We sit in the dark and share snacks before the 12-inch screen as I discover a world far removed from historical monographs and antiquated novels. Next Saturday afternoon, I hear Mona's phone ring. She mumbles something, then knocks at my door and passes her cordless receiver over. Hello? The voice is fuzzy. Ross, it's James. I barely made it. Your radiator overheated and burst. I just got off the freeway. It's pretty bad. Looks like the block is cracked. I'm in a phone booth at a gas station in the Hollywood district, just off Halsey Street. Oh no, I cry. Hold tight. That's not far. I'll catch a bus and be there in 20 minutes. Mona hovers in the hallway, wide-eyes curious. What's going on? She asks, accepting her phone back. The worst, I exclaim, lacing up my combat boots. As expected, that impound lot wouldn't release my motorcycle without a title. But months ago up in Seattle, I lent an old Celica to my buddy James. He was driving it down for me today, and something awful happened. Maybe a busted engine block. Sounds serious. Mona shakes her head. Losing two vehicles in a week? You must be the most unlucky fella in town. I ride the bus out to meet James. Stocky, with short blonde hair and a dolorous expression, he leans against the side of my car. White steam rises from under the hood, and green radiator fluid pools below. We embrace, and he passes over a heavy paper bag. What's this? A six-pack of Afri. You know, that German soda we used to drink in high school? Not much consolation since your car is shot. Oh, thanks. I haven't had one in forever. No stores carry it down here. James kicks his heels against the front tire. Sorry. There was no warning. Just steam everywhere. I clap him on the shoulder. Eh, don't beat yourself up. Just glad you got here safe. So, it's not cold, but we can share one of these if you like. James nods. I am about to pop the Afri's cap when one of Portland's many art cars pulls up to a red light at the intersection before us. This specimen is entirely covered in potted plants and gargoyles, from green fronded bumpers to leafy hooded roof. The driver, wearing large aviator sunglasses, turns up the stereo and dances in his seat. He bounces up and down to the beat with a yard-wide grin. I amble over and hand him my bottle. The signal changes green, and with a jaunty thumbs up, he roars away. I smile. Portland is not the worst place to be stranded. One day, in late November, Mona and I make a supermarket trip in her old three-speed GM pickup. Its suspension groans and lists to one side. The steering wheel measures only nine inches in diameter, a custom addition so her girth can squeeze inside the cab. She maneuvers using a shiny chrome steering knob gripped in her left fist, the arm bent double. Mona switches off the engine and looks at me, face serious. I've been thinking, Ross, you and me, we spend a lot of time together and already share a bathroom and a kitchen. Why don't the two of us just get a place of our own? The only difference would be less money. I mull this over for a moment. Yeah. Seems like a good idea. Some place closer in would be preferable, since I'm on public transit now. We give one month's notice, and at the beginning of December, rent a two-bedroom apartment in northeast Portland, off 82nd and Gleason. Over time, I accumulate more possessions, brought back piece by piece from Seattle when friends visit. My turntable, several crates of records, a 1985 Macintosh computer, and boxes of clothes. Mona empties out a storage unit, filled before her trekking days, which contains enough furniture for our new home. 
She lends me an old couch that's just long enough to stretch out my bedroll. The winter continues, with Mona still on unemployment and I working at the aluminum plant, now a very long bus ride away. She attends an evangelical church out in an eastern suburb, and with few other social outlets, I occasionally come along. We often cook food together and watch television late into the night, but sometimes her gaze lingers on me, hungry and unsatisfied. Once, as I dry off from a shower in the bathroom, my housemate walks past and scratches her fingernails slowly across the closed door. I shudder. Mona keeps in contact with one of the truckers at her old company, a Nicaraguan man named Manuel. She invites him over for dinner several times, and I find him quite pleasant, though Mona claims his motives are less than honorable. He's fine when you're around, Ross, but as soon as you leave, he doesn't want to do anything but get up my skirt. Well, Manuel's a good-looking guy. Why do you turn him down? Mona scowls. I won't sleep with a Mexican. <laughs> no problem. He isn't Mexican. Her eyes narrow. Whatever. I won't sleep with someone like him. Though I might take a black man if he's clean. Anyway, it's still against my religion. There's just one person I'd make an exception for. Only one. I avoid her gaze and hurriedly leave the room.